This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I'm sitting here and I am talking to Dan Matthews, also known as the Nomadic outdoorsman does i say that yeah. right is that right it's a that's nomadic right, right? yeah the that's nomadic what i thought outdoorsman. It was. you weren't wearing your hoodie anymore so i wasn't sure but <laughs> oh i got my nice warm comfy one on yeah um so anyway dan if you could introduce yourself a little bit for everybody listening that doesn't know who you are yeah so uh like you said my name is dan matthews i run a couple podcasts the nomadic outdoorsman and the western rookie uh, the Western rookie is all about, I mean, like it says, being a rookie to Western hunting, trying to give people the tools and tips and gear reviews and everything that they need in order to successfully hunt out West. Uh, the nomadic outdoorsman, that all came about because I'm not the kind of guy who likes to hunt one thing and one thing only. If you told me I had to give up whitetail hunting, if I wanted to continue to hunt everything else, it'd be gone because I can't. I can't just get locked into one season. I don't know why. I get just as excited about frog gigging and dove hunting <laughs> as I do going out for elk camp. Maybe not just as excited, but pretty excited. And so the whole idea behind that is I want to travel. I want to experience these new hunts. I want to do the things that most people in the country don't know about. Like people are going to hate me for it. I want to see what hunting whitetail deer with hounds is like. I don't want to like knock it until I try it. And I think there's a lot of cultures and a lot of types of hunting that get overlooked and I have to experience them all and make up my mind for myself. So yeah, started those podcasts and then uh, run social channels along with them. My wife and I do a lot of silly and, and kind of funny relatable marriage content 
surrounding hunting. So um, that's me. It's also like Tic Tac star slash sensation as long as, as well as like <laughs> Instagram reel. Uh, right. I mean, that's kind of the, yeah. what you guys are known yeah, for now. That's the biggest problem is uh, social media takes off so much quicker than podcasts do. So I'd like for people to be like, oh, dude, Dan is like a stone cold killer. He goes all over the country and shoots these big animals. And instead they're like, dude, that TikTok dance you did with your wife was awesome. And I'm like, ah, this is my life now, isn't it? You didn't want to do it. You were forced into it. You and I talked a little bit at the show and uh, you, you, you definitely were forced into it, but it's worked out well for you. So you can't complain too much. No, I definitely can't. If you had told me three years ago that I was going to be a TikTok influencer or an influencer of any kind, I probably would have punched you in the head. But uh, <laughs> honestly, social media is an awesome tool for advertising and marketing. And uh, once we discovered that, you know, we ran with it and it's paid off. Yeah, that's something a buddy of mine told me the other day that actually introduced me to you. But Eric was saying, he goes, either you got time or you got money. If you got money, you don't have the time to make all those things, but that's the great thing about social media is if, if you don't want to throw the money at it, you can, you can just take the time and devote it and be able to grow something out of nothing. And it's all organic. So that's pretty cool. Uh, You definitely can't knock it as far as that goes. Sometimes there's a lot of negative light shed around, you know, social media and stuff like that. But I think, I think overall it's just, it's, it's, it's an easier way to convey it or put something out there that people see it's not necessarily that that evil now exists because of social media it's that it's always been there but it's easier to see it or or be able to get access to it yeah yeah definitely i mean it's at everybody's fingertips and um the thing that i really do enjoy about social media is that it allows people can to connect directly with you and yeah it's not face to face necessarily but I get approached at different trade shows or different stores like Bass Pro here in town. I'll be walking through and someone's like, dude, Dan from the Nomadic Outdoorsman. I'm like, hey, what's up? I don't know you, but how's it going? And, you know, they'll introduce themselves. Hey, I live local. I'll swap numbers. We'll try to get a hunt together, things like that. But there's something when when you follow someone and, you know, you're notified when they post something new and you go and you watch it and you comment on it and they comment back. Like there's, there is kind of this fake relationship that's happening and it does allow you to almost speak to them at a more personal level level once you actually meet them. Whereas if as a podcaster, you know, I'm talking all the time, but there's no two way interaction with my listeners, you know, they're not, they're not commenting on everything. They might go on social media and use the social media platform as that way of communicating with me. But as far as while I'm podcasting, it's a one-way deal. Yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. I've made a lot of connections through social media that, you know, you wouldn't, would have never known that these other people exist or, you know, develop that relationship where I'm to where, where one day you do meet. And I've been places like trade shows and stuff like that. And it's like, I know you wait, well, maybe I don't know you, but kind of do right social and and then sometimes you even know their social media handle and you don't even know the real name but you see them and recognize them it's kind of funny you know and i had a buddy once that told me he's like if everybody could just wear their social media handles on a t-shirt when they're out in in public it'd be a lot easier and we'll just get our handles tattooed hashtag something over our forehead or something (laughs) like that yeah for sure so um 
nomadic outdoor outdoorsman, uh, and it's actually because you and your wife and children were pretty nomadic for a while. Um, can you kind of go into that and explain that? I think it's pretty cool the, how you guys, the lifestyle that you lived for a while. Yeah, so uh, we've always been, we've had the family motto, and I mean, before we even had kids as a couple, we had the motto, always choose adventure. And so when we're faced with two different roads to go down, we choose the most adventurous route. It might not be safe. It might not make the most sense financially, but we find ourselves really enjoying life and and getting to experience things that the general population typically doesn't. And so uh, at one point, we had owned a school bus that I was going to convert. I didn't fully know what I was going to do with it yet. Um, we ended up moving to Colorado, and so we sold it before moving out there. And then while out there, my wife was like, hey, we should totally buy a camper and renovate it. Like with your construction experience, with my design, I think it would be pretty cool. So we did. And it turned out awesome. I mean, it was a really cool camper. We ended up renting it out and then selling it and started a business probably, I think it was around that same time. We started a business part-time flipping campers and fifth wheels and travel trailers. And then that turned into full-time. We got invited to take part in a TV show where we had five days. We were on a team of seven. My mom moved up two of the seven. Uh, we had five days to flip a sprinter van from completely gutted to fully road ready, like sleeping quarters, sink, counters. I mean, like decked out, ready to go. And then we were competing against two teams. One was a school bus they had to do that to. The other one was a camper. And in meeting all of these people, a lot of them, no, I shouldn't even say that. I'd say it's probably 50-50. Some of them were younger. Some of them were older. And they kept telling us about this lifestyle. And they'd talk about the places that they'd wake up or, you know, hey, we live up in Washington State for two months and then we shoot down to Oklahoma and live there. My family's there. We get on to Arizona for the winter or we go over to Florida. And just hearing the the different places that they get to experience every year or just the nights that they wake up or the mornings they wake up next to the Grand Canyon watching the sunrise. I'm like, man, this is really intriguing. They all seemed very free and very happy. And so it was shortly after that that we said, hey, we're going to do this full time. And so we ended up getting a motorhome since June or July. I might be off at the time because it's flown so quickly. We've been living full time in a motorhome, traveling the country. We've hit roughly 30 states in that time frame. Um, and Actually, we lived in a camper before that uh, when we first moved back to Missouri from Colorado. So anyways, that all came about because of like business, because of contacts that we had made. And then my wife was also like, oh, this is perfect. We can just drive from hunt to hunt for you. And I was like, I knew I married you for a reason. Like that is the <laughs> sexiest thing you could have ever said to me. And uh, so, yeah, we just kind of bounced around and got to experience some cool hunts around the country uh, this fall. No, that's awesome. So. What's the hardest thing about the like the RV life then? Um, honestly, it it's not what a lot of people would expect. I think a lot of people would say the space is going to be difficult. You know, you're stepping on each other's toes all the time. We've got two kids, six and four. And so we thought that might be a challenge. The number one thing that we missed, I think, was the community that we had um, in Springfield. We've got 
great groups of friends, my wife's family, a lot of them are here. And I found myself on Thursday nights, we do this big guys night every Thursday night, we get together, we'll hang out, we'll smoke meat, we'll work on a boat or a truck or whatever. And Thursday nights, all the guys would be texting like, hey, who's coming? This is what we're doing tonight. And I would, I'd be in an awesome place. I mean, I'd be in Glacier National Park with my family. But I'd be like, man, I haven't got to hang out with friends for two months. And it was the same thing for my wife, same thing for the kids. They're our friends. And so we realized at that point, we still want to be able to travel. We want to adventure, but we want to establish a home base and then maybe travel for a week at a time instead of three straight months. So are you guys going to do like a big pole barn house or something where you can pull the RV in and just pull out of it when you want to, or what are you going to do? Yeah. So we actually have plans. It is a big like barn dominium style house. The back, the back garage area has room for a, a motor home. And so we'll pull in, that'll kind of be serve as a guest house also. And then, um, yeah, when we want to go, we're just going to hop in. So we'll have that, we'll start building the house at the beginning of February um and then we've already got like a full month maybe two months down in florida planned for this summer we've got some friends that are going to join us for a good chunk of it and so we still want to maintain that adventurous lifestyle we're just going to go about it differently because when i say like we traveled and it was fast paced people aren't dumb like i am like they actually <laughs> go to yellowstone and enjoy yellowstone we spent one day in the redwoods we spent one day in glacier national park we spent one day in canyonlands one day in yellowstone one day in the badlands i mean it was literally like we go check it out for a day we try drive towards our next destination maybe sleep in a sleep in a truck stop somewhere and then hit the road again in the morning and it was very cool i mean i felt I felt like one of those guys who used to jump on a train and just go somewhere, you know, <laughs> like you jump in the box car and you travel across the country. That's kind of what it felt like. And so it was cool. But, um, yeah, Yellowstone definitely deserves more than one day. So, uh, so we're going to change, we're going to change that next time. Was there a schedule or time constraint that you had to, or you just wanted to try and fit more in? There were, there were probably two or three time constraint deals. Um, you know, we had like the premiere of the TV show that we competed in. Um, I had to pick up a dog. I picked up a, a lab in Montana. I'm trying to think. I went to an event in Missouri, and then I had a hunt in Utah that all had pretty tight time frames that I had to be there. Um, other than that, it was just like we had we threw stops in there with, that we weren't planning on doing. We'd be doing something, and it's like, hey do you want to shoot over to South Dakota and go see the Badlands? Uh, sure. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> and then we would do it. Or somebody would be like, Oh, you should come check this out. And we're like three States away. Yeah. Might as well. Let's go swing by and meet these strangers. That's and, uh, it was, it was wild for sure, man. It was definitely a wild experience. No, that's pretty cool though. I mean, being able to do that and having the freedom to do that is, uh, is an awesome thing. So, um, talked about how you have the podcast and talk about you know the western stuff and um just kind of curious how you got into that how long have you been doing it uh, all that kind of information yeah so i 
I got into podcasting because I used to listen to Meat Eater and Wired to Hunt. And I was like, man, these are awesome. And honestly, Dan Johnson, he was the co-host of Wired to Hunt at the time. And I would I would listen to Wired to Hunt. And some of my favorite parts were when him and and uh Mark Kenyon were just BSing. And they were just talking about their lives and family life and oh, I'm still after this buck and uh, you know, how's that property coming along? And I was like, man, that's a really cool style. It's not necessarily as much of an interview. It's just more conversation. And I was like, I'd like to do something like that. So I talked about it and talked about it and talked about it some more. And one day my wife, I remember she looked at me and she goes, Hey, either shut up about it or do it. And I was like, Oh, okay. Couldn't be any more straightforward. Um, and I think that comes from the fact that I would always tell her, or I'd tell my friends, I'm like, listen, if you're broke, that sucks, but you don't get to complain about it unless you're actively doing something to change it. And so she basically pulled that same card on me. Like, Hey, you want to do this? Stop talking about doing it unless you're going to. And so I did. And it's been, I'd say it's been on and off for two and a half years. I've been pretty serious about it for about a year and a half though. Um, and so, yeah, probably 150 episodes into the one around 50 into 50 into the other. And it's been fun, man. I, I could talk, I could talk about hunting to a rock. I mean, you put camouflage on a rock and maybe put a rifle next to it and I'd have a conversation with it about hunting. So, <laughs> yeah. So what was your first, uh, Western hunt then? So my first Western hunt, uh, was elk, uh, rifle season elk out in Colorado. And I was very fortunate to get hooked up with some guys out there when I moved out there. And I say, I mean, that's the first like Western hunt that people would classify as a Western hunt. You know, I started waterfowl hunting out there, um, had done that my whole life. But when I moved out there, I'm like the front range of the Rocky mountains is in the background of me shooting birds. And I was like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever done. And anyways, they were like, actually, no, I take that back. I think my, I think I'd have to look back at pictures. I'm pretty sure my very first Western hunt was a moose and it was tagging along with my buddy for a moose hunt. But I want to say that happened before my first elk season. Either way, got hooked up with these guys they learned this unit and i started hunting with them and they got on me or they got me on the elk right away and showed me what it was all about um you know showed me different styles some guys would pack in and set up spike camp some guys would hunt on the two track and then from there once they found an elk they'd bomb in after it and um it definitely intrigued me the second year i hunted out there i got a a mule deer tag I uh, was fortunate enough to tag a bull elk and a buck mule deer on the same day. That was pretty wild. Um, and then from there, I mean, it's just been joining people on hunts out west if they get a specialty tag like a moose or a mountain goat. Um, and then I've kind of branched out into all different stuff, mountain lion, bear, you name it. That's That's awesome. <clears throat> so when you tag along on these hunts, how do you, I mean, is it somebody that you already know? Or is it uh, somehow you got hooked up with them through social media or what? So, um, like the moose and the mountain goat, they were both, my buddy Sean is so lucky. He drew those tags, not back-to-back years. There was a split in between. 
Um, and so I tagged along with him on those and those are, those are those hunts that, you know, you might go your whole life, not get drawn. And so when you know somebody who does get drawn for that hunt, if you're close to them, he called me as soon as he got the draw results each time. And he's like, dude, take off this time we're going. And so I took off two weeks for the moose hunt, took off two weeks for the mountain goat hunt. And we just went up there and chased animals. Um, and I'm hoping that I get the call about a big horn, you know, this year or <laughs> next year, and we can just kind of, uh, finish off the, the big three in Colorado. But so, so those ones were because I knew him, uh, I had been invited on, uh, a rifle elk hunt out in Wyoming. And that was just kind of tagging along somebody I knew. And then there's been hunts where people have hit me up through the podcast and said, Hey, come mountain mountain lion hunting with me. I run dogs. Uh, my buddy Dustin, he was on the podcast. I didn't know him before the podcast, but afterwards he's like, dude, come out and hunt mountain lions with me. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I mean, we still communicate, you know, uh, I've been invited anywhere and everywhere. It seems like at this point, um, I don't get to go everywhere time and, and money and family and everything, you know, has to be taken into account on these hunts. But uh, I did get to go Sandhill crane hunt and waterfowl hunt down in Texas this year. I'm about to head down to Georgia on an island hog hunt. Uh, so that'll be interesting, something I've never done. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of cool opportunities. And when I first started the podcast, I said that's what it's going to be all about is making connections. And if I can just make enough money off the podcast to pay for my hunting expenses, that's a win. Absolutely. And, uh, my wife's like, well, maybe if you could pay our bills also, that'd be helpful. And, uh, so we've been working towards that. Yeah. One step at a time. Let's not, uh, let's not take it too far, but yeah. If we yeah. Pay yeah. For yeah. Let's just expenses. get some really cool hunts. I mean, <laughs> we'll always have an electric bill, babe. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> this, this Island hog hunt, I mean, what do you know about it other than it's on an Island? Are you using like rifles or dogs or what, what's the story with that? We're, we're using rifles. Um, it is, you can either take a ferry in, or if you have a, if you, you have your own boat, you can take your own boat in. So, um, one of the guys is bringing his boat where there's a group of us, probably six or seven of us going out there and it's going to be rifles, no dogs. It's just a big public Island. And the only people who are allowed on the Island at that time are people who are hunting hogs. And so cool. I don't fully know what I'm, I, I don't know what I'm going to get into. I mean, like we're going to be on the, on, on the ocean and they're like, there's spots where we'll sit up on like a giant sand, sand dune looking at the ocean and, you know, you could have hogs right behind you. So <laughs> I'm going to bring my saddle. Um, I don't know if I'll end up needing it at all. I'm going to bring my Fox pro call uh and probably close to dark or first thing in the morning um play a piglet squeal on it and see if i can't get some pigs coming in to investigate and other than that i've got no idea what to expect <laughs> i've seen and i don't maybe it's the same island but i've seen somebody where they hunted that like something similar to that before and the hogs were actually swimming and they were in a boat and the hogs were like swimming past them and they were shooting them in the, in the water and like throwing them into the boat. So that's crazy. There, <laughs> I, don't know. I know, I know there's some islands, there's some islands down off the Gulf somewhere. I don't remember which, which Island chain it is, but they're known for their pigs down there. And you can go, you can pay 
to do a charter and they actually pull the boat up next to the pigs and you get out and swim and you're like throwing food out to these wild pigs while swimming with them in the ocean. Oh yeah. And yeah. That's, that's a little different. This is killing the pigs. But no, no, yeah, no, no. It's definitely different. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It's definitely different, yeah. but I, yeah, to, to see just how aquatic pigs are, it's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you, when you apply for like Western hunts and stuff, is there anything that you've kind of given up on or are you still going to throw, throw money and points at it? Because I've kind of come to the realization like this year, I'm not going to put in for Arizona antelope anymore. It's just, I don't even think it's a possibility. And why would I, I don't want to wait 30 years to go hunt antelope when I can have four points and go hunt in Wyoming. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've been debating whether or not to pull the plug on moose out in Colorado, I've got enough points to where I could technically draw, but the odds of that are almost zero. Um, and in looking at it, in, in looking at how long it will realistically take me to draw a Colorado moose tag, the price of the preference point every year, because they bumped their preference point for mountain goat, moose, and bighorn to $100 just to Ooh. get the point every year. Um, so yeah, 300 bucks a year, if you want to put in for the big three. Um, and then if I figure it's going to take about 20 years before I draw that tag for the unit that I want. So I'm 2000 deep into it. And then the tag itself is $2,400 for a non-resident. I start factoring all that in and I go, man, I could go do a DIY moose hunt in Alaska for about that same price. And I could do it next year instead of waiting 20 years. Right. (laughs) Uh, so that's one. I just feel like Colorado would be cool. You know, that that being one of my first big game hunts out west, I'd like to go back to that same unit. I really want to do it with a bow. And I also don't have to compete with grizzly bears and wolves up there. Well, wolves yeah. by yeah. the time. Yeah. yeah, maybe grizzly bears and wolves That's, by the time I don't I draw. think they're too far off, to no. be honest. I mean, I've got a buddy who told me that he's swears that there's grizzly bears all the way out in the breaks now, so... If, oh yeah! If they're all the way out there, I mean, they're they're gonna make their way. Hey, I wouldn't be surprised. I've already seen signs up on telephone poles. Uh, there was one town that I drove through. I think we I think we were in the motorhome, and it said, "If you voted for the reintroduction of wolves, you're not welcome here. Please recreate <laughs> somewhere else." I was like, "Whoa, shoot!" <laughs> um, but yeah, so that one, uh, the one that I've definitely given up on was a mountain goat tag. Not because I don't think I could ever draw it, but because I got to experience that hunt. I basically did everything that the hunt requires aside from pull the trigger. And I did not like the meat at all. (laughs) And I was like, if I'm not going to eat it, like there's certain things I'll shoot if I'm not going to eat. Like if I'm down in Texas and we're hog hunting, like we're going to shoot a lot more hogs than we would ever eat in no place is taking pigs anymore because they get so many donated already. Um, but it's a nuisance type of deal. Same with coyotes. If it's a game animal that I actually like to eat, like I'm not just going to go and shoot it. Or if it's an animal that I'm just shooting because I want a big furry white rug, I'd rather not do that. So, uh, I quit putting in for preference points for mountain goat and I doubt I will ever, put in for him again what about uh bighorn sheep though have you ever eaten bighorn sheep i have not um i don't i've heard that it's not bad 
Uh, it's not like the greatest meat ever, but uh, mountain goat, there are a lot of people who are like, I mean, yeah, no goat is really that good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the bighorn, I think I'll keep putting in for. I feel like they'd be a lot better eating than a mountain goat would. Um, and they're huge. I was surprised at how small a mountain goat is. Yeah. Um, they're really not that big of an animal, whereas bighorns are way bigger than I ever thought they were. They could be a couple hundred pounds, I, I, I think. Like, you yeah, just seeing them on the road. Ram. Yeah. Oh, I've seen, yeah, I, I don't know how big they actually get, but I saw a, a couple rams on the road that looked like they were probably mid-300s or big, bigger. I mean, they were huge. <laughs> and maybe it was my perception was off. I'd have to look that up. Um, actually I'm going to look it up while you ask another question because now I'm super curious. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one thing I don't even put in for anymore. Like when I first started putting in for points, but to me, I don't know. I I don't, I don't see it as being a realistic goal to draw in most places, you know, as far as bighorn and all that, especially as like a non-resident Colorado or something like that. Uh, you know, but yeah, there's a lot of other hunts I could do. The point systems, they, they change different places and, you know, they increase, like you put in and you factor in this lifetime of applying for points, how much it's going to cost. And then you go in the next year and they've increased it and it's, they're never going to decrease it. It's always going to increase. And so it's like becoming more and more unattainable. And then with the amount of people who are doing it, your odds are decreasing every year instead of increasing. And so that's the challenge. I don't know what what they're going to change. Honestly, I think a lot of it's going to change as more of these states open up certain hunts. Like Wisconsin now has an elk hunt that they're opening up to the residents. Once the population gets big enough, it'll be open to non-residents as well. Missouri has a, it has an elk season. Um, Arkansas, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, there's a lot of states that have elk seasons. And so I think you're going to see a lot less hunting pressure out West as people discover the opportunities close to home do you happen to know like the allocation of tags that they have i've always been curious i don't think it's very many for a lot of those states even like kentucky i don't think they give away that many do you think they kill more than like 100 elk a year or what what's the numbers i i don't know how many it is i do know the draw draw odds to actually draw the tag are a lot higher than getting like a trophy unit in colorado um Yeah, they are because not a lot of people look east. You know, when yeah. you, th- if I said, all right, hey, where are you going to go elk hunting? I bet you Kentucky wouldn't be in the top 15 states. You know, people just don't think about it. And I would have never guessed Pennsylvania, but you have these states that have reintroduced animals and they got through the phase of only allowing residents to hunt them. And now they've got sustainable populations to where non residents can hunt them. And if you think about it, they're going to have a better age structure because they don't have as much pressure. It's much more managed and regulated. They, they haven't been called to, you know, like when they hear a call, it's probably almost always another elk calling instead of a hunter. You go out West and some of these elk don't ever hear enough. They only hear hunters. Um, and then on top of that, you have like the corn fed aspect of it. Uh, you're getting these, these elk that are just hanging out on, uh, big crop fields and then you call them into the woods like 
I had a guy on the podcast not that long ago and he got, he actually drew a cow tag in Kentucky and he drew a bull tag in Pennsylvania and he shot a monster bull. It was like upper three hundreds. And I was just blown away when I heard that. And I was like, man, if you, you could put in your whole life for these tags that everybody wants out in New Mexico or certain parts of Arizona or Utah or Idaho, or you can put in for a couple of years and possibly get drawn in some of the Eastern States. Yeah. And it's not as far to drive. The tags, not as expensive. The preference points aren't as expensive. And so it just seems like a win all the way around. I think like Kentucky, I pay five bucks. It's five bucks to enter the draw every year. I've been doing it for like three years now. And I think I put in for like a bull or a cow tag or like a combination tag where it's like you can hunt rifle or muzzleloader archery thing. It's like a combo tag. Um, I put in for that and it's five bucks and I think it's only like 500 if you draw. Like it's it's Colorado's what now for an over-the-counter tag. It's like easily a thousand dollars with your fees. I think I think I ended up paying seven oh two for a tag this year, and then they try they try to incentivize people. There's a lot of areas that you can also hunt a bear, um, and you can pay like a hundred dollars for an additional bear tag to go out. And that way, if you see something, you know, you can shoot it as well. But yeah, like here in Missouri. They've had the season open for a couple of years. I think they started out with six tags that they gave out. All six people filled their tag with a bull. And then they're going to do it again. They'll probably increase it a little at a time. But it's like eight bucks for me to put in for it. That's yeah. <laughs> that's not terrible. Wisconsin is only open to residents right now. But then I look at places like Maine for moose. And the application for a moose is way cheaper in maine i mean it's like a fifth of the price if not less the tag itself is like half the price of colorado and so it's difficult because i love the mountains and i love hunting the mountains i love traveling through them but when these other opportunities are coming up that are also going to be awesome it's hard to justify you know a forty five hundred dollar price tag and a 20-year wait list to go out to colorado when I could potentially do it in multiple other states between now and then. I mean, how many people can say they've actually killed an elk in Kentucky or Missouri uh, in in this day and age that are still living? You know what I mean? Like the last era of that is like Daniel Boone. (laughs) It's like that's that's an era that's been long, long gone. And now there's a revival of that. I think that's awesome. I mean, it's a testament to conservation for sure. And it makes me like super excited. I know it'll probably never happen, but like hopefully in Illinois one, one day, you know, they say, yeah, we're going to reintroduce a herd down in the Shawnee national forest. And next thing you know, you can go down there and hunt and you know, where are they at in Missouri? Are they in like Mark Twain or something? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, there's three zones that they've opened up and they're all like on the Southern border, basically of Missouri. Mark Twain is here. I mean, it, it, it's like bits and pieces all over the state basically. But I honestly think like you mentioned in Illinois, I think in our lifetime, we will see elk hunting in almost all 48 lower States. Um, the amount of work that the RMEF is doing constantly 
is insane. I mean, the amount of states that they're reintroducing elk to is insane. And then when you look at how long they have to be reintroduced before they have viable populations to actually hunt, it's really not that long. I mean, you you talk if if they get elk reintroduced everywhere in the in the next fifteen years, which I don't think is a crazy goal. You're looking at twenty five years before every state would probably have a, a population big enough to at least give out resident act for, and then you add other top of that and now you potentially have hunting opportunities in you know three four states pursuing wild game in wild places tuning to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Yeah. No, yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, what's cool is like, and I'll, you'll never be able to hunt them, but I've got a wild bison herd like 10 minutes from my house. Oh. <laughs> no kidding it's well maybe it's a little bit further than that but probably 20 25 minutes but yeah there's an actual wild bison herd that they introduced onto some land and uh, you can actually hunt that land but not the sectored off section that's fenced in for the bison but there's wild bison herd i can watch them watch them run around and chase each other and you know little calves tagging along with them it's it's pretty cool to see that and in my mind i'm like man It'd be just so cool if they just kept growing and they opened it up to the rest of the fenced off area and you could, you could actually hunt them. But I, I don't see it happening. I think right now the herd, they actually take them and they ship them off to other places that are reintroducing bison as well. So it's, it's pretty neat though. I'm curious, like, you know, they've got all these different wildlife organizations, pheasants forever, ducks unlimited, national wild Turkey, um, you know, National Deer Alliance, RMEF. Do they have one for bison? Like National Bison Alliance or something? I, not that yeah, I the know National of. Bison Alliance. Because there think are so. a couple states that you can get tags, and they're just expensive. I think South Dakota, if you draw that tag, is like 40, 42 or $4,600. So what's crazy um, about that is you can go hunt a reservation that has wild herds for like 1400 bucks. I mean, they're cheap. Yeah. And like if you get a cow tag... I think you can get like a non-trophy cow or whatever on a reservation and you still have to draw like the, the, the reservation has a lottery system. And so you have to apply yeah. and then all of the indigenous and tribal members and everything else, they get preference to those tags first and whatever's left over from that allocation of tags, then it goes to the public and you get your chance to win. But I mean, I know a guy, he goes, I put in my first try. And he goes, I drew, and it was $1,100. It was only uh, you know, a 12-hour drive. Drove to South Dakota and did my hunt. It was you know, a one-day hunt, pretty much. And uh, did it with archery equipment. And they took oh it to the gosh. processor for him. And he goes, yeah, within three days, I was driving home with just coolers of processed, processed meat ready to go and take home to my family he's like it was awesome and it's once in a lifetime experience really i mean unless yeah. you're going to try and do that every year but it, it, i mean 
it's out there and it's just crazy. I mean, I get it. Like the state's doing it to fund that, but like, if you can't do it at the state level, like I'm totally putting in this year for a bison tag. That would be so <laughs> awesome. I, I look at it in, I don't know how difficult a bison hunt is. I really don't. I don't know if it's like, man, you're almost guaranteed to get one. If you go out and, you know, buy this tag or get drawn for this tag. I like I really like the idea of not having any idea if I'm going <laughs> to get an opportunity at one, you know, or when that hunt drags on for five, six, seven, twelve 12 days, whatever, and your nerves start to get to you and you start questioning like, dude, am I going to get one? Am I going to fill this tag? Did I waste all my time? Did I travel? Did I leave my family uh, for nothing? I don't, I don't necessarily care for the super easy hunts, like where you go out there day one, you kill something and it's like, oh, well, that's that. <laughs> I like the, I like the challenge of it. I really yeah. do. And don't get me wrong. Like I got, I shot a deer my first day hunting this season. I shot a bull on my first day of the hunt. It wasn't easy. I had to work for it. I had to go farther back in than anybody in our group is willing to go. But, but yeah, it, it was definitely like, oh man, that was awesome. And also my hunt is over one yeah. day in. I think, uh, like, so I've talked to my buddy's dad that's done it, and I think maybe he's done it twice. Um, So when you're going after, like, it might be easier to just pick off a random cow that's in a big herd, you know? Yeah. But he was going after a mature bull, and he said those mature bulls surround themselves with cows and other satellite bulls, and they move. So when one moves, they all move. And he goes we spent two days chasing the one bull that he wanted to get, or maybe even three days. And he goes, it was nonstop movement to try and get them. He said, as soon as I made a move, one of them would spot him moving. They'd all move and go 300 yards down. And he goes, I'd have to start my stock all over again. And it was just the same thing. I think he said for three days and he said it rained and like the mud, the mixture, I can't remember what they call it. Some type of muck. But he goes, you'd be hauling like 20-something pounds of mud on muck on each boot as you're walking. It just keeps caking and piling on with the grass. And he goes, I've hunted hunts in, you know, the backcountry and other places. And he goes, that was actually the one of the hardest hunts. And the thing that made it torturous was you could see it. You could see it the whole time yeah. right there in front of you, but it wasn't an attainable goal until it, was it happened. It a different yeah. game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So he's like, it Dang, was a total sounds... like mental game that screwed with you because you could see it, but you just couldn't get it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That could, that could mess with your brain in a hurry. Just <laughs> seeing your target animal for hours at a time yeah. and getting close and it doesn't work. <laughs> see, at that point I'd be like, all right, screw this. I'm going, I'm going back to internet service. I'm buying <laughs> one of those ultimate predator decoys and I'm walking right up to this thing, pretending to be a buffalo. Yeah. And I'm going to be one of the cows that it surrounds itself with. Yeah. No. No, they did. I, I can. I would imagine that buffalo aren't the type of animal you want to mess with, though. No, I don't know. You don't want the wrong one, so they come charging at you or whatever. No, definitely not. <laughs> no, he did it, and he said, I mean, it was awesome. He said it was a great experience. He said uh, the whole drive home, he still couldn't feel his legs from that hunt. But, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's I like those hunts, man. I like the misery in the middle of the hunt. It yeah. makes the it makes the reward so much better when it happens. And it's pretty cool. I mean, he had it hanging above his fireplace for, you know, 20 something years or 15 years. 
and I'd come over and see it all the time. And that's when he told me the story. And I was like, that's, that's pretty cool. But I mean, that dude, he's been all over. He's been Africa, I think like four different times or three different times. And he's, he's had some fun haunts, got some cool stories. Yeah, that's awesome. I've got, <laughs> I actually have a Buffalo rug. My wife's grandfather uh, used to do war reenactments. And he became really, really good friends with a bunch of the native, uh, the native people that he would do war reenactments with. And they killed this bison traditionally, did this ceremony where they blessed the hide and then gifted it to him. And he passed away, but her mom had it. And I found it in the garage. And I'm like, dude, what is this? Yeah. And she's like, oh, it's a buffalo rug. And I'm like, I'm taking what? this. This <laughs> yeah. thing is not sitting in a box any longer. And so that's going to be one of the first things that go up in my shop at the new place. I had it, I had it hanging up in a shop that was, I mean, it, it wasn't a big spot, but the wall that I put it on, I thought was, oh, this is going to be huge. I put that Buffalo rug on and it took up every inch of the wall, floor to ceiling, side to side. They're huge, especially when you turn them into a rug. So that's my goal is to have his hanging on one wall and then one that I shoot hanging on a different wall. So I've always wanted a bison fur coat and like that's like cool but the super flex is a grizzly fur coat and have a like oh a my full gosh. length coat made out of like the grizzly fur that's like my ultimate goal <laughs> see yeah the fur coats would be sweet um i my goal it's not necessarily coats because i don't know that i'd ever want to wear them i'd be like dude i don't want this oh, to I'd get destroyed it. i'd wear it uh i'd wear it until it had holes in it <laughs> You just wear it and nothing Everywhere. else all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. On hunting trips. I mean, probably not the smartest thing, but I'd wear it on that other hunting trips. That would be pretty awesome. Yeah. No, I think that'd be cool. I want to use rugs of a ton of different animals that I shoot as sound dampener for my That's podcast studio. studio. That's pretty cool, just too. Just like every wall just completely covered. And then I would just tack up all my mount, like all these mounts behind me. I'd tack all of those up over the rugs and then just have the sickest podcast studio that you can't even see the <laughs> paint on the wall because you just rub the too walls, many rugs from furry walls. <laughs> yeah. I like it. That'd be cool. That'd definitely be cool. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I'll actually ever get the grizzly bear coat, but that would be uh, ultimate, but hopefully I'm going to, I'm going to keep applying for the bison tag and try and get that. Though. Oh yeah. But uh, do you apply for like Montana see, and stuff too? Or do you, do you apply for bison? I'm expanding different places uh, this year that I'm applying for. You know, this is the first year that I'll actually have the financial and time freedom to apply a bunch of places. So I'll be applying for Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, Maine, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and probably Arkansas. So you're going all and. In. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to, every year from now on, I'm going to put in for as many places as I can. I'm going to be putting in for my kids as soon as, I don't I don't know what the rules are on that. Like, if you have to be legal hunting age to start getting points. But I'd I, like to. Yeah. There was something I need to look that, that up. There was like a Randy Newberg video, and you could actually create an account for them and do that. But I can't remember if it was like 8 or 12 or whatever it is. I, I think they have to be eligible they don't actually have to have the hunter safety course but an eligible age for that okay. i think i think that's how it goes or at least for certain states so my son is six and so he can legally hunt in missouri right now uh six is the cutoff and so i took him out a couple of days for for uh deer 
and I'm going to put in for the elk season for him this year. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, if my son at seven years old draws an elk tag, it would be awesome. The only problem is he could really only do it with a rifle because the, the elk tags that they give out here, you have basically all of archery, muzzleloader, and rifle season to do it. Um, and I'm like, I would want it, and I would want to go shoot one with my bow. But yeah, for him, it'd be kind of bittersweet because I'm like, he wouldn't fully appreciate it right now, but also I would still get to help him hunt an elk in Missouri. <laughs> that would be awesome. It, I think it'd be more for me than for him. You need to get a llama and put a saddle on it for him. That's, there you uh, go. I like so, that. Uh, Ryan Lampers actually had like a saddle thing made up so his youngest daughter could go deep in the back country with him, and he took her, no. I think it was on a bear hunt or something, and uh, like 14 miles deep, rode the llama most of the way. It was probably one of like Mark Livesey's llamas or something, but I mean, that's pretty cool to be able to take a kid that young and be able to get them back there to where you normally never could have. I mean, how, oh, many, yeah. how many people had Kakara llamas, you know, 30 years ago or well, maybe they oh, had a lot gosh. more back then. I don't know, but yeah. I, yeah. Who knows? Maybe they just had <laughs> pack mules and that they took everywhere. Yeah. It'd be cool for sure to get that and have your kid do that. Especially Missouri elk tag. Like, I mean, you're already right there. Like, you don't have to go that far. Just get the kid back there and be able to make it happen would be amazing. I'd definitely oh, yeah, I'd go. I'd go. I'd go find a good spot in Mark Twain, set up a big wall tent, and then hunt, you know. I don't know how far I would have to draw, depending on the unit that I get but uh, or that he would get. But, yeah, just go spend several weeks out there, find a spot that my wife and daughter could come hang out for a little while also. Um so yeah, this year I'm going to put in for way more states than I ever have. Um, we'll see what different hunts pop up, but it's, it's always an adventure. I like connecting with new people. I try to make it a point every year to hunt with 20 new people. Um, whether it's, you know, their first time or they've hunted forever and I've just never hunted with them. Um, I just like making those connections and hunting with new people. So, um, I, I don't know what all states it's going to take me to this year, but hopefully some cool ones. That's awesome. So, um, you, you said hunting with new people and stuff like that. Was that one of your hunting resolutions, your, your goals or anything, or how'd you come up with that? Uh, I just randomly, like I, I would run into people and it, it could be at a work function for my wife or, you know, at my buddy's a party for my buddy. I don't know. And I'd start talking to people and they'd be hunters and, I always found myself like, dude, we should hunt sometime. We should hunt sometime. And I would do that over and over and over. And some people would take me up on it. Some people wouldn't. But I love even even my number one hunting property where I've got tons of awesome turkey. I've got pretty decent deer on it. I find myself inviting people out there. Even though it means it might be one less turkey or one less deer for me, the, the camaraderie of hunting and the, I don't know, like the fellowship of other hunters being there is cool to me. And so I can't tell you how many people I've invited on hunts and 95% don't take me up on it. And I'm fine with that. But, uh, just seeing how other people do it. That's, that's another big part of it. I want to experience different types of hunting the same animal. You know, I hear about those guys up in New York that will get, get out on a fresh snow and they'll find tracks that they know are only a few hours old. And they literally just walk the tracks until they catch up with the deer. Yeah. I'm like, that's crazy. Like, you guys are psycho. That's, like that's that, awesome. That and, Al- Almer guy or whatever his name is, I think he does yeah. that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, that stuff's cool. And even just seeing, like I hunted on this lady's property one time and this was way, I mean, this was when I was in high school, probably she had this property and she always told us about this buck that had like 32 points. Right. And it was down at the base of her driveway and several neighbors confirmed that this thing would hang out in the swamps, like down by the road. And we would go out there. And I remember, remember one day we were walking out there and she was about to get up in her stand and she lit a fire at the base of the tree and she just piled up a bunch of leaves and stuff and she started a fire and i'm like what are you thinking like this is back when i had those scent wafer deals you know the like waffle things that you'd clip on everything and they'd be like dry earth or you could get the extra scent and so scent control was huge for me and i'm like oh this is the greatest thing ever uh she lit a fire and i was like this lady's crazy she's like no actually it's a great cover scent it's something that makes the deer curious Cause they almost have to see, they have to find out, is this just a small fire or do I need to get out of the woods? And she's like, every time I do it, I have deer come to investigate. And I was like, what in the world? And then I talked to other people who will actually smoke their clothes when they go out on elk hunts or mule deer hunts and they'll get green cedar or pine boughs and put them on a hot fire and they'll hang their clothes up above it. And they don't use any scent control. They'll play the wind. But even if the wind shifts, now these elk are smelling something that they probably smell three to four months a year, especially during the wildfire season. And so stuff like that, I love learning about that and hearing new techniques and trying it out for myself. Yeah. So have you actually tried smoking your clothes? I haven't. I, I mean, anytime I'm out West, I don't do any scent control stuff and I don't like take my clothes off and hang them up above the fire, but I wear the clothes that I hunt in around around the fire at night yeah and so i know that it's like getting covered but i'm not i'm not like smoking my clothes i just don't do anything to prevent them from getting covered in smoke so I guess if that makes sense do you do scent control like when you're whitetail hunting in the midwest nope me neither nope i don't do <laughs> yeah me neither. i don't do any scent i i haven't done scent control for hunting period the only thing that i might do is do some like extra scent or like a drip deal or like a mock scrape but as far as covering my own scent, I do absolutely nothing for it. Yep. And I'll I'll try to play the wind. You know, I'm I'm not going to be stupid. Like if I know there's a giant buck out in a cornfield, I'm not going to be like I'm going to the upwind side of that deer. No, I'll try to play the wind. But I'm not I'm not buying scent from the store all the time or online and covering myself in it. Or I haven't done the Ozonics. I've heard great things about it, and not that I would be opposed to it, but I've found success without doing anything at all right so yeah yeah i i think a lot of things especially with whitetail hunting are kind of gimmicky and i would never say that scent control is a gimmicky thing um but i think people put too much too much weight in scent control like buying separate washer and dryers there are people (laughs) that only wash their hunting clothes in a separate washer and dryer and I mean, they're stone cold killers. Some of these guys are killing 200 inch deer every couple of years. And so I don't want to take away from the fact that they know what they're doing, but I'm not buying a separate washer and dryer, no. <laughs> you know, like I don't, I don't carry my clothes out to the field in a tote and then get changed in the woods to prevent any other scent from getting on them. If, if I spilt a little gasoline on my hunting boot, it wouldn't bother me even a little bit. I'd be like, eh, oh, well. 
<laughs> I guess if a deer smells me today, it's going to smell gasoline. I try not to let anything like that happen. Like the, about the most scent control I do is I wear rubber gloves when I'm utilizing like a gas motor on my canoe or something like that. Like I'll wear rubber gloves just because I'm touching like the choke and all that kind of stuff on it. And it might have a little bit of greasy, you know, gasoline residue. But other than that, that's about it. Like I'm not going out of my way. And I and what's crazy is like you said, the whole success factor. I've found success without it. I've probably seen more mature deer in the past couple of years than I've ever seen. Um, and there's been zero scent control. And any of the times that I've actually utilized certain sprays or something like that and really loaded it up on my boots and walked in, I've actually seen deer smell that stop, turn and run where I walked. Yeah. And it's like, mm, I don't think that's very good. So I try a different product or something, you know. But other than that, I mean, the only time I ever really used scent control, like religiously, and I didn't use it that day. And this is what's crazy is I doubled up on deer and it was my first archery buck. And before that, I always used scent control, had like carbon, carbon clothes and all that kind of stuff. And they were wet from the day before. So I couldn't throw them on. I was like, oh man, I'm running late. I threw on just an old pair of coveralls that I had in the garage that had probably been hanging in the garage for a couple of years since I last used them, grabbed those, threw it on. And I took like just a little bit of the Evercalm herd in a stick, rubbed that on them in a couple spots and up the tree I went. And honestly, I don't even know if it was the Evercalm, but I had three deer come in and uh, it was prime rut though. So like, I don't think they care no. regardless about what I smelled like or anything. They didn't care. They were just there to get it on. And so, oh, yeah. you know, that's that's how I got, you know, on that. But I, I still honestly don't think it was scent control at all that mattered on that either. No. I I pee right out of my tree stand. Um, I I got into pipe tobacco for a while. Like, absolutely <laughs> love smoking pipe tobacco. And um, I remember talking with my brother, I think it was, and he would smoke in the tree stand. And I was like, dude, you're an idiot, man. You know, like scent control is king. Like you got to do whatever. He's like, dude, I've shot more deer while smoking than I probably have not. Yeah. And I'm like, really interesting. And a lot of, a lot of my buddies, um, like I, for me, I don't, if, if I'm sitting up in the tree and I've got a cigar, I'm like, sure. I'll smoke a cigar in the tree. Literally I've shot deer <laughs> while smoking. Like, I would say almost every deer I've shot in the past couple of years, at some point that day while I was in the tree, I was either smoking a cigar or pipe tobacco. Really? <laughs> and, oh yeah, 100%. I shot, it's the same thing with uh, Western hunting. We'll be, hike, we'll be hiking up and down the mountains and, you know, we're, we're smoking a cigarette or a cigar or pipe or whatever. And, or like we're sitting there glassing and doing it. And I just, I don't put, I don't know. I feel like deer and elk and all of these animals, they've got phenomenal scent, uh, scent receptors. And at the end of the day, they're going to smell you. They really are. I would rather smell like smoke or cedar or something that I'm like walking through. Like maybe I'll step in a cow patty as I'm going through the pasture here in Missouri for me, I'm like, if I don't smell, if I don't have like this potent fragrance on, I'm not spraying cologne on me, Right. you know, I just want, I just don't want like an insanely bad smell. Other than that, I don't care. Yeah. So 
That's funny that yeah. you say that, though, about the smoking in the tree stand, because you always hear stories about somebody knows or they've got the uncle, especially like Missouri, like the Midwest type, you know, and the uncle that smokes cigarettes and got a pile of butts underneath the tree, drinks Budweiser yeah. first thing in the morning, and every year he drops the 150 <laughs> wearing blue jeans, you know, sitting on a branch in a tree. See, here's <laughs> the deal. So I, I started out smoking uh, I started out smoking pipe tobacco. And it's always been just like kind of a casual thing. I've never been addicted to anything in my life. And it's always just been a casual thing where the guys get together and we'll have a nice cigar, right? Well, it got to the point where we were duck hunting one day and my buddy Brad, he watched me and he was just laughing at me because I had I had a pipe with me and I would hang it on my duck call lanyard. <laughs> and so like I'd sit there and I'd 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 smoke out of the pipe. And he's like, dude, you are constantly having to relight that. He's like, why don't you just smoke these? And he had a pack of American Spirit cigarettes. And I was like, dude, I'm not a cigarette smoker at all. And he's like, this is literally water and tobacco. That's all it is. There's nothing extra to it. So I was like, okay, sure. So I started doing, I started using that because it was less maintenance. And it was still just kind of like, it's a social thing for me. Like you're sitting there hanging out as guys and you, you have a cigarette or a, a cigar or something. So this year I killed my biggest bull, my biggest buck with a bow and my biggest buck with a rifle all this season. Every one of those hunts I had, a, I had an American spirit before I killed the animal. <laughs> That's crazy. And I'm not saying like it was lucky, but I'm telling you it did not change a single thing of the hunt for me. And sure. There's probably things that I don't know that happened out in the woods. Like, Sure, there could have been a 200-inch white tail downwind to me, and it didn't come in because I was smoking. Don't I don't know that, and you don't know that that <laughs> happened either. But I do know that I killed my biggest buck, yep. and I do know that it didn't affect him at all. So, yeah. honestly, I think that smoke is probably one of the best things that you could smell like in yeah, the woods. Yeah, for a cover scent. I agree with that. I totally for agree sure. with that. One I of... used to, <laughs> back in the day... I used to put my, I'd take cedar planks. I had a, I redid a whole like shed in cedar on the inside. It was like gorgeous. And I took a bunch of the cut pieces of cedar and put them in my hunting bin. And then all my clothes would go in there because someone had told me at one point that cedar is like a natural bug repellent. And I had read in a magazine one time that this guy went and bought cedar chips from the store and dumped them out in front of his tree stand. And he would watch coyotes, deer, raccoons. They would all come and they would roll in the cedar tr- chips. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Hmm. I yeah. don't know how much study was done into that. I probably just read literally the one article and said, I'm doing it. And so I started putting all my clothes in a cedar bin. And that was the only cover scent I used. And now I literally couldn't care less about cover scent. Well, that's I wear I mean, the same clothes on the way out the door, the same clothes into the gas station. I'm yep. not changing three times just to go out and hunt. No, absolutely. I agree with you on that one. We're on the same page for sure. That's actually uh, why they used to line closets with cedar. It's because it was a natural bug repellent. So it would keep the bugs, like the mites and the moths and different things off of your clothes. So that's, I mean, that is why they did used to do that. So there you go. There, there's reason behind it. <clears throat> For sure. Hey, so sometimes when I regurgitate information on here, it's actually accurate. That's yeah, good to know. That's 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 accurate. That's why they always used to make cedar line closets. Um, the other thing I find it interesting, and I just learned about it, so I have to share it. Is they actually take it, like, and I think it's almost all commercial tobacco. They extract 
the nicotine out of it. They dry it and then they spray it with nicotine so it's an even application because otherwise uh, you couldn't commercially say this has five milligrams or nanograms of nicotine per gram or whatever it is. There's no way to accurately measure that and like dosage for dosage for actual smoking yeah. purposes. So they actually to extract the nicotine out and then spray it with the nicotine so it's evenly coated and everything is the same throughout an entire cigarette, throughout an entire pack. And I think the same goes with pipe tobacco too. So I just learned that, thought I'd share it with you. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, I my my wife absolutely hates that I smoke anything at all. And she's like, here's the deal. You can do it. I'm just not going to kiss you until you brush your teeth and wash your face and all that. And I'm like, okay, cool. And so I, I typically keep it to, you know, when we're hanging out with the guys and we're going on a fishing trip, a camping trip, floating, things like that. But there's something about just sitting in the woods. Like, you know how some people just eat snacks. They've got like their 9am, 10am, 11 snack. Uh, it it kind of breaks up the day. I feel like. And <laughs> I'm a fat kid. And, I can't do it. I can't sit oh, there and bring snacks and be like, "Oh yeah, I'm uh, I'm not going to eat these until ten o'clock. They'll be gone if I had them. Like, I, it's different if you're like hunting and it's a long term trip to where you have to conserve it. But if I'm going out on a day hunt and I'm in a tree stand by nine a.m., that salami and cheese or whatever is probably yep. going to be gone. I actually killed a buck with a chunk of salami in my mouth. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm always amazed at myself when I open my bag in the tree and I still have snacks. Normally they're gone on the drive. <laughs> and the thing that I, the trick that I've discovered works the best is if I just stuff myself completely full at lunchtime, if I'm doing like an evening hunt, that way, three hours into the hunt, finally I'm like, oh, okay, I don't feel sick from how much I ate. Now I can eat a snack. Otherwise, they're gone way too soon. Yeah. Same thing with breakfast. I try to eat a huge breakfast before going out in the woods. Oh, I don't do Obviously, that Obviously, that poses other issues. You know, yep. you've got to find yep. a good place to go. Um, but, but yeah, this snack thing is a must. I, I get bored. I get bored out in the woods. And if I'm not doing something active, I'm falling asleep, guaranteed. And <laughs> then I wake up and I think, okay, there was probably 12 deer standing right in front of me 30 minutes ago, and I'm just passed out in the woods. Um, so I try to stay awake. That comes with having something to drink, having something to eat, having pipe tobacco or something to smoke, and it just keeps me active. Yeah, for sure. I, no, I get it. That's, uh, I, I've been trying a new thing. <clears throat> and so this year, almost every hunt, I went out empty stomach, not even coffee in the morning. Uh, I think there was like two mornings where I had to do it to where I drank coffee. And like, that was rough. Like normally I'm a coffee person. I need that caffeine in the morning, but I tried it and then yeah. just drank water. And it was like an inter intermittent fasting along with the hunting. And I don't know, I wasn't super successful this season, but uh, maybe I was a little bit lighter afterwards. I don't know. <laughs> But uh, do you do you ever have the years where it's just like you feel like you can do everything right and nothing pans out? Oh, yeah. And then on the flip side, you feel like you just do everything you're not supposed to and it still happens. I yeah. I feel like I experienced that all the time. This year was one of those years where I said. Like, it was just the best year ever. I mean, I had five out of five days of hunting, five total days of hunting. 
I had killed two bucks, a bull, and two does. And I'm like, this is unreal. I only had two <laughs> days to hunt Missouri for early archery season, killed a buck on my first sit, killed a doe on my second sit, literally assembled my sticks and my platform, never had sat in a saddle before, just got that in the mail. So I, I go out, and it takes me 45 minutes to climb the tree, pouring sweat, and an hour and a half into the sit, I shoot the biggest buck I've ever shot with my bow. That's awesome. And then, and then the next morning, go out, shoot a doe, same spot. Well, Colorado, shoot a bull, first day, first day, biggest bull I've ever killed. Go up to Wisconsin. And, I mean, I hunted the rest of that season. Uh, in Colorado, but I didn't have a tag. So I count the five days as literally the first five days that I had to hunt with my own tag. I killed five animals. The The buck that I shot in Wisconsin, look over, here's a deer. I had my camera. I, I always bring my camera and a bunch of GoPros and all this stuff thinking, oh, I'm going to get this. I'm going to self-film. I'm going to self-film. As soon as I see Brown, I forget that there's even cameras there. I don't even hit record. Right. And so... I, I look over, see this deer. I'm like, oh, it's probably just a small doe. I just saw brown through the woods, and for some reason, it looked like real fluffy, you know, like a like a yearling doe sometimes looks like. And so I don't pay much attention to it, keep looking, look back over, see five points on the right side. And I'm like, oh, crap, that's a good buck. Look at my camera, go, I don't have time, turn, shoot this thing. And I I walk down. To get my buck, I drag it to the bottom of the hill below me because I was going to go get my four-wheeler, drive it in, load it up. And I get down to the bottom of the hill. And I'm like, dude, this was this was nuts. Like, I just, it happened so quick. So I walk back up to my seat, which was 40, 50 yards up the hill. And I sit down. And as soon as I sit down, I look to my left and there's a doe at 40 yards. <laughs> and I'm like, what the heck? I've been walking around. Like, I literally just drugged my deer. So I watch her. She walks away from me a little bit, still within 70 yards of me in the woods. And I sneak down. My rifle is leaning up against the tree right next to my buck. Oh, that's why I came up the hill. I had to walk back up the hill to get my knife. Uh, I was going to start gutting it. And so I had leaned my rifle against the tree down the hill by the buck. I walk all the way down the hill to my rifle, all the way back up to my seat, find the doe again, shoot her. She was within 100 yards of me the entire time. <laughs> and I'm like, this is one of those years where I literally just can't mess up. Like, I wish I did have a moose license this year. That was like, the American <laughs> spirit was with you, I guess. <laughs> it's the American spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, that's awesome, Dan. It, <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> Congratulations, man, on a banner year for sure. Uh, just it don't expect good, that yeah. next year because it's gonna be it's gonna be a rough one. No, I know. <laughs> oh, I've had I've had good years in the past, and it seems like they they just skip a year every time. Maybe it, two. Maybe two. Yeah. So next yeah. year is gonna be my year for sure. Uh, after missing go. that buck and some other stuff the year before, so um, it's been great talking to you. Uh, before we go though, can you kind of tell everybody where they can find you and listen to the podcast and all that cool stuff? Yeah, so on all platforms, on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, I don't know what other platforms, uh, is The Nomadic Outdoorsman or The Western Rookie. You can go follow along, like, share, do all that good stuff. And then the podcast is found on most podcast platforms under the same things, The Nomadic Outdoorsman or The Western Rookie. So that's where you can find it. 
Awesome, man. So good to uh, get you on and talk to you about all this kind of stuff and just share and get your experiences and compare and contrast to mine too. So it's been, uh, it's been good. Yeah, it's been awesome, man. I really appreciate you having me on. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you could check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.